0: Still celebrating with leftover gluten-free cake. It's episode 255 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James with him. Yeah, we celebrated five years last week. Thank you so much for your support. And you, I, I know you'll be here for another five years, right? Because we've got great shows like we've got this week. Another double dose of interviews. Going to be talking about the two-hour finale of The Passage that's coming up on Monday with Keisha Lewis And yeah, she's going to be playing a big, big role in the finale, I have a feeling. We're going to be talking to her about that. Plus, also going to be talking about The Enemy Within, NBC's new show, with a lot of intrigue and espionage stuff going on there. Going to talk to Cassandra Freeman about her character, Jacqueline Pettigrew, who's coming in in this upcoming third episode, also on Monday night. So basically, we've got your Monday night covered on this week's show. But we're going to start with comics, as we always do. It's what we're reading next. On the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Greg Pock, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hit that power button on the laptop or the tablet, or you could just drag out the long box because whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and all good things must come to an end, unfortunately. And the final issue of Green Arrow drops this week from DC. It just happens to be number 50, written by Jackson Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. Javier Fernandez on the art, John Callas on the car- colors and world design on the letters. Great cover too, by the way, by Kevin Nolan. So since this is the final issue of Green Arrow, probably for a while, certainly in this run of 50 issues that it's had, I am gonna drop a few spoilers in this review. Usually don't in what we're reading, but I'm gonna this time. Basically this entire issue, and it's an extra sized issue too, by the way, is Oliver on the run from of all people, his pretty bird herself, Black Canary. And I say that because you know, the government has been trying to get Ali to come in. He's, they've been trying to, I don't want to say take him down, maybe that's take him in. They want him to stop doing what he's doing. They need the box that he was given by Martian Manhunter. If you haven't read any of the back issues of Dark Knight's Metal, I, I recommend it highly. But basically, Martian Manhunter said, look, this could take down the Justice League. I trust you with this and nobody else here. So you've got Oliver being chased down by the government because, because Dinah, you know, she used to work for the government. She was a spy at one point. They kind of went to her and said, look, he's coming in. You're going to bring him in. So she finally says, you know, just let me do it. Let me do this my way. I'll talk him into it. I'll get him to agree to it. That just doesn't sound like Oliver Queen, does it? I'm not going to really spoil anything in this issue beyond that because I think that, you know, you kind of saw the tea leaves before that anyway. So here's the thing. We get to see Oliver get a lot of self-introspection, right? We also get to see him on the run. We get to see him do him, his thing. It's almost like a highlight reel of Oliver Queen. You know, like when somebody retires from their sport and you get to see all, all the great things that they did in their career leading up to that point. Well, instead of in their career, it's actually not highlights of what we've already seen, but highlights of, oh, here's all the stuff that he's capable of. Here's all the things that he can do, and here's all the things you're going to miss, when, this, when these issues aren't on the shelves anymore, as far as new issues are concerned. So it really gives you a sense of just how good Green Arrow is as a character, and how good Oliver Queen is as well. And we do get a couple little Easter eggs from past issues. I can tell you, that won't tell you exactly what they are. But, you know, Oliver's determined to hang on to this box, but he's also determined to hang on to his relationship with Dinah, and... That their strong bond, which was started by Benjamin Percy, who was just phenomenal when Green Arrow Rebirth started, the bond that they've built—you, I—it's so I feel it so much. And there's a there's a part of this book where they where where Dinah's talking to Oliver about how much their relationship means to her and how much it changed her. And it's also changed him as well, but just hearing her talk about how much it's changed her perspective on relationships in general, it was just a great scene. And then we get to see how things sort of play out and we get to see a decision that's made at one point in this book that is going to lead to Oliver's future one way or another. And I think it was a good conclusion as far as being able to do this with the 50th issue, leaving it the way they did Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, the way they left it, I loved exactly how they left it. And so much raw emotion that just poured out of this book, whether it was from Dinah and Oliver together, or just Oliver. It was just so on the money. As somebody who's a huge fan of the Green Arrow character, yeah, I'm going to be sad to see these comics go. But I think we had a great run with Benjamin Percy. We had a great run with Julian and Shauna Benson. More great stuff here from Jackson, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. 50 Issues is pretty darn good. That's more than a lot of characters get. It was a good run. I'm going to be sad to see it see it go. It's hard for me to rate this because it's not coming back. It's not like I can say, hey, put this in your pull box because you should have had it in there already. But I will say this. Go back and read the back issues. Live vicariously. Live vicariously through those back issues, and just remember how good this was and how good Green Arrow comics can be if they come back. And remember these creative teams, too, especially great writers like Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, who do such a fantastic job on a lot of the deep sea projects that they work on. You You almost can't get a better artist for a book like this than Javier Fernandez. Remember the great work that Otto Schmidt and Benjamin Percy did together. Remember the great work that Julie and Shauna Benson did when they were at the helm for this character for a while. And, you know, you can buy the trades, do whatever you've got to do to tell DC, hey, you know, we really want these books back, by the way. So let's see if we can make that happen at some point. Now on from something that's ending to something that is just starting because we have Ronan Island, number one, from Boom Studios. And, of course, Greg Pak doing the writing there. Giannis Minolo Giannis on the art. Irma Nevila on the colors. Simon Bolin on the letters there. Man, I hope I got any of those names right. Thanks, Greg, for being on the show in the past and letting us know how to pronounce your name. So that was easy. (laughs) This story follows Kenshi, who is from a legacy family, and Hannah, who is kind of like a farm girl. She's almost like the small-town girl, but they're both vying for first-in-class for their island. And I say it that way because basically, maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler, so I'll give you a heads up on this just in case. Now, this island is actually made up of those who survived something called the Great Wind, basically wiped out thousands of people in in areas of Korea, Japan, and surrounding areas there. Now, the island itself is actually the head masters on the island, or Master Ito and Elder Jin. They're, they're kind of the two overseers and leaders of the island. If they had elected officials, these would probably be them, but it's a very equal society and everybody kind of helps everybody else out. But, you know, you've got the rich kid Kenshi versus Hannah, the farm girl who is also a student of Master Ito, by the way. And it's a very, you know... you've got the underdog story against the legacy story like the the one that everybody thinks should win and and will win against the underdog and you get to see this play out throughout, throughout most of this book actually you get to see their competition and i mean they're still kids right they're still young and just the way that they play off of each other, it's the playful competition they have, but it's also pretty serious, at least to one of them, it's it's really, really fun to watch. I'm going to be honest. It's super, super fun to watch. And I say that because I know it's a comic. I'm not actually watching it in in motion, but I feel like I am. And that's one of the beauty parts. Of Giannis's art is bringing something like that to life, and Greg's words breathing just almost this realism into it. I feel like I'm watching this move in front of me more of like it's a motion comic than anything else. But the fun comes to an abrupt stop at one point because it gets cut short because a mysterious ship kind of approaches the island. Imagine living on your own thinking you're the only people around, and then a ship pulls up. Not only that, but spoiler alert on this as well they claim to be samurai. Well, the samurai were supposed to be wiped out in the great wind. So what the hell is going on here? Now, obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of skepticism from people on the island, Master Ito, and you've also got Elder Jin who're trying to figure out what's going on. There's two very different perspectives by the way as to what should be done by this. And these new folks are not very friendly either. So Just when it seems like things are about to get really, really heated, then another thing happens that I'm not going to spoil for you. It might change the decision-making process as to whether or not they want to play nice together. So I got to tell you, this book was a lot of fun in the beginning. The twist there towards the end I thought was really, really interesting and something I didn't necessarily see coming. And it gives the story a little bit of a different bend because I thought we were going to kind of talk about rivaling societies and a society that we thought was long gone now back into the forefront again, maybe or maybe still does exist after all. And that is going to be part of it, but I think part of it now is going to be this new little wrinkle, which could really, really be interesting going forward and might force an alliance more than anything else. So great art by Giannis, as always. Greg always brings it, which is one of the reasons I wanted to read this book in the first place. I think it's really, really interesting, and I I think that doing a book like this that is not just completely about the samurai is really, really important, and it tells a different kind of story, and I, I hope we get to learn more about the island itself as the story plays out as well, because I want to learn more about exactly how life has been lived on this island. I was super interested in it. I don't know if you were when you read this or not, but I got to tell you, that was one of the things that drew me to the story as well. This is a poll for me. I'm a Greg Pak fan anyway, so maybe I'm a little bit biased. But I can't read to see. Can't wait to read more of these issues to see how much of the story plays out. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, time to talk about the enemy within from NBC. Cassandra Freeman joins me next on the Down and Nerdy podcast.
1: This is Audrey Spata from Blind Spot on NBC, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast.
0: Now I'm sure you're already watching NBC's The Enemy Within every Monday at 10 o'clock Eastern, so here's somebody you actually haven't gotten a chance to see yet. It's Jacqueline Pettigrew herself, Cassandra Freeman. How are you doing, Cassandra? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Now, like I said, fans haven't gotten a chance to see Jacqueline Pettigrew yet in the first couple of episodes, so are there any challenges to kind of jumping into a story that's already a couple episodes in as an actress?
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, as just a human being... Uh, who is an actress? You come in on the show, and everyone's already friends. And you're like, "Hi, everyone! Hi! Um, can someone throw me the ball?"
0: <laughs> That's <what it> feels <laughs> I want to play like. too.
2: Over here, <laughs> I want to play too. But you know, the opportunity in that is that you get to bring an energy that has not been affected by everyone else. So, whatever energy you bring, it can be like, "Oh, oh, something new here is a different ball." Okay, and people get to rise that so that's sort of the opportunity with it and that's what I've sort of tried to hold on to it's like nope I'm not like anyone else here I'm new to the team
0: awesome now when you're first reading the script what was your first impression of Jacqueline
2: you know it's interesting that there was there's the first version of her and then the version that ends up in the final draft because the drafts change and when I first read her I was like oh she's that girl who's like listen I say what I say and I mean what I say I mean you know she's one of those people she's like I say what I mean and then as she evolved, the writers made her much more of this person's like, yeah, I said what I meant, and I'll wink at the end of it. Ooh. Wow, like I just, I just love her sensibility, and I feel like she thinks deeply, but she's, she's a very emotional sort of woman, and it can come off kind of gruff. But for the most part, it comes off as—I hate the word sassy—but really, it does come off a bit sassy every now and then because she refuses to. She refuses to be that person who just gets angry. She's like, "No, we're going to do
0: it a different way."
2: I really, she's on—you know, she's unflappable. There we go. The unflappable there we, oh, I like Jackie that.
0: Pettigrew. I like that. There we're we gonna—we go. have, have to just stitch that right on her vest there, and then you're good to go. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. On set, people call me Petty G. And they said it grew,
2: but it was, here comes Petty G.
0: That could be her Twitter Coming handle. I'm going
2: to take care of it.
0: Thank you. I know I'm going to have to change Yeah, everything. just just hit her up on Instagram. Thank at. They'll be so confused. They'll be like, but isn't it Kathy Gamble? <laughs> <for> whichever. Whatever. <laughs> now, Cassandra, it's pretty clear that everyone knows who Erica Shepard is at this point. And we know how the rest of the team feels about her. How do you think Jacqueline will, will react to her being a part of everything?
2: You know, Jackie comes in, and I feel like she's, She's like, wait a minute, why is this woman here? And then it's sort of like, well, of course, this woman, this is who the government would think would be smart to help. Okay, fine, fine. And because of that, I think Jackie might be just a bit more open-minded than everyone else because, like you said, she's coming in on the team that's already been solidified. So if everyone else seems okay and the person who brought her on the team, which is Will brought her, if they think she's cool, she's going to give the woman a chance. I actually think Jackie might give her more of a chance than anyone else on the team.
0: Interesting. Actually, with with you being a new mom when you first started working on the show, do you think that kind of changed your perspective on her situation a little bit?
2: More than a little bit. More than a little bit. You know, my kid is eight months right now, and when I started on the show, he was four months. And still, motherhood, at least for me, is a sense of heightened empathy. So to watch what uh, Shepherd's character is going through... I feel like she must be in a place of heightened empathy as well. But for me as an actor, it's something crazy. I got to tell you, to be on the show every weekend, we've been doing that, what, four or five months, and to have all that alpha energy, like you want to run straight into the fire, mm-hmm. and you take out the gun, you'll do whatever it takes. Listen, in my real life, it's, it's the total opposite. So even on set, I have to meditate a bit to really let Cassandra sit down somewhere and let this alpha energy of Jackie come through and no joke i think it's made me a better mother because now if my son falls i'm not like oh no that's right Yep, that was me that was right.
0: totally oh, cool. me. Yep.
2: oh no now i'm like listen babe you got it takes friction to make polish so mm. you're gonna be okay I'm gonna tell you know, my wife boy. that the here, next time
0: my 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 kid falls down and hits his head or something, I'm gonna be like, ah, he just, it's just so he needs polish. It's fine. He'll be cool.
2: Well, no, it's true. And then he'll look at you and be like, oh, now I see why mommy and daddy's doing. It. But look, before I got on set, oh, my husband accidentally, like the baby, accidentally hit his head once with my husband. I was like, that's it. You gotta be monitored. <laughs> he's got to be monitored.
0: Stick the nanny body I'll cam on. Down
2: him. Oh my! What a great idea. It's going on him tomorrow. No, no. Now much
0: more. <laughs> oh wow. i mean i'm
2: like i'm like every other woman i'm like why do you have the kid upside down no 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 it's too much blood going to his head you know and now calm down i'm like okay maybe he'll be a pilot because he's used to this there you okay. go
0: there you go uh, every, everything has a little bit of a perspective on it now i mean how much do we actually know about what how much can you tell us i should say about her familiarity with the team and you mentioned will keaton morris chestnut's character what's the familiarity there how much can you let us know
2: they hit towards, I think really, she definitely has a history with Will, and we'll see if that comes out throughout the season. But the immediate relationship that you see is between her and her partner, uh, Jason Bragg. I work with Jason Bragg is, you know, the heads to my tail. Okay, she he, you know, he's my up to my down. He's my partner in crime every week for sure. But you really get to see how their relationship changes physically and also emotionally throughout the season. It's really about those two people, which is played by Noah Mills, who's brilliant.
0: Excellent. Can't wait for that. We're talking to Cassandra Freeman, who of course plays Jacqueline Pettigrew on The Enemy Within on NBC. Now, Cassandra, we've you've kind of revealed in a couple of other interviews that Jacqueline's been working at Quantico. She's an instructor. So what would you say her teaching style is, and have you ever had a teacher like Jacqueline? <laughs> oh, ah.
2: Well, yes, she's, she comes from Quantico. She worked there for a few years, and she's uh, really great at hostage negotiation. So that's her big thing in life that she teaches. And that's also the skill that she brings to the team for Will and everyone. And the way she teaches, again, you would think with what she does at the level at which she does it, she'd be like a punch in the face. And again, she's not. She's like a nice caress on the cheek. and. The closest to a teacher I've worked to at, at, like that, who was like that with me at least, was an acting teacher when I was at NYU for grad school. And his name was Ron Van Lu. And you'd see Ron work with some people and it might be a bit gruff. And with me, I could be crying and be like, I don't understand. And you would think he'd be like, oh my God, get over it. And instead he'd be like, no, you know, I believe in you. It's going to be, you're going to get through this. It's going to be fine. And I like to think, uh, I used to be a teacher as well, and I started off as a very heavy-handed teacher, and then towards the end, I became much more of that teacher was like, look, I've got great empathy for you. I feel deeply for you, and that's the type of person that Jackie is. She's not someone who slaps you. She's like, no, nope, we're going to hold your hammer, and
0: I'll make you come across. Love that. Love that. Now, there can be some predictability in shows like this where you kind of see where the story is going, but how do you feel like The Enemy Within kind of keeps us guessing with each passing episode?
2: I would be shocked if anyone can watch the first 10 minutes of this show and then tell me what they think the last 10 minutes of it is going to be because we sit around and do the table reads and I'm not a quiet person. I'm the person who's like this, what? Oh, no. Oh, my God. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> the table reads. And that's me. Watch, Look, I watch episode two last night and i felt the same way when i saw certain people do certain things on the show i I stood up and i said what and i forgot i even read that back in the day so and i'm a very cynical viewer i've you know i've been in a lot of movies i watch a lot of movies i know exactly what's going to happen and that's not the case with this show if you see one thing coming you won't see the next four punches coming
0: Nope. One thing I do love about this show, though, in the first couple of episodes, is that we already kind of know that there's a traitor in the group. And we get to see how she's operating in real time. How cool is it to kind of have something like that revealed right away and see it play out rather than letting it drag out and be like, oh, so that was the person?
2: Listen, I know. When I first saw, you know, when you see it, episode episode one, see that flip happen, you're like, what? And again, as a cynical person, I thought, "Well, there goes the drama." I mean, how is that? How is that going to carry through? But what's great about this show is the enemy within is that not only is the enemy maybe the person next to you, the person who you know is doing bad stuff, can also do bad stuff to you too. I don't even know another way to say it. Like it's, it to me, this shows much. Isn't there that metaphor about the crocodile and the snake, and the snake's like, "Help me, crocodile, get across." He's like, no, you're a snake. You're going to bite me. And he's like, no, I'm not going to bite you. And so sure enough, the snake gets on the alligator's head and they go across the lake. And the alligator's like, wow, you were right. And the snake's like, yeah, I told you I wasn't going to bite you. Mm -hmm. And then just when the alligator turns away, boom, he gets bit. And the alligator's like, what happened? And he's like, well, I'm a snake. I told you that. That's this show. Just because you see someone bad do something good, it doesn't mean they won't ever do something bad. And just because you see someone do something good in the show it doesn't mean they're going to stay good. That's what's really interesting to me. Because usually in the show, the good person does something bad. They're always bad. That's not true. And Erica Shepard is the embodiment of that. Mm-hmm. She's a traitor, but she did it maybe for her daughter. But does that mean we can trust her throughout the show? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it changes every episode for all we know. It's it's case by case with everyone.
0: And it's kind of misdirection too, right? Because you're like, oh, well, she has ulterior motives. But that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody else doesn't either, right? That is the beauty of the show. I feel like, you know,
2: another way to think about the show is how good are you at poker? And if you think you're really great at poker and you think you can tell what people's tells are, then I dare you to watch this show and tell me whose tell is the biggest out there because you have no idea. Everyone's holding a deck of cards and you're trying to figure out how are they going to play them. Right down to where whether they work for the FBI, the CIA, whether it's her, whether it's just an American citizen on the street, you really don't know who's holding what cards and what is their motivation for playing it the way they play it. And does that make that person good or bad, even if they have a good motivation?
0: Absolutely. Now, Cassandra, before I let you go, I have to ask you, pretty simple, we haven't really seen a whole, we know what his plan is, but we haven't seen a whole lot or heard a whole lot from him. How scary is Mikhail Tall? <laughs> I mean, I feel like anyone
2: who's a boogeyman is scary because they're under your bed and you don't know what they look like, but you know their presence is there. That's how scary he is. His presence is always there lurking pretty terrifying even when you see him it doesn't it doesn't even matter what he looks like at that point because he's sort
0: of omnipotent and we can't wait to find out everything that's going on with the enemy within on nbc you can watch it every monday night at 10 o'clock watch it again on the nbc app and of course at nbc.com and look for episode three because that's when you'll see Jacqueline Pettigrew herself Cassandra Freeman thank you so much for joining me this week thank you you're amazing have a great one thanks for having me on Well, it sounds like Jacqueline Pettigrew is ready to shake things up on The Enemy Within. Episode 3, of course, this Monday at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on NBC. You don't want to miss cassandra freeman's debut i could tell you that much right now not spoiling anything but you definitely don't want to miss it for sure it's gonna do it for this week in geek tim and our little chat with cassandra freeman about the enemy within up next yeah there's some big nerd news including a follow-up to a story we talked about last week next on the down and nerdy podcast
2: Hey, this is McKinley Belcher III from Fox's The Passage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Every now and then, we have updates on stories that we've done before, and this is one of those weeks. It's time for nerd news, and because it looks like Will Smith actually will get replaced as Deadshot in Suicide Squad 2. But Variety reports, who would have thought that Idris Elba was going to be the one that replaced him? I'll be honest, I wouldn't have even thought for a minute Idris Elba would be an option. I'm going to even go as far as to say, is this is an upgrade from Will Smith as Deadshot? He just seems to fit the role a little bit better. Will Smith made Deadshot his own. And I'm not saying that Deadshot can't be funny and sarcastic. He absolutely is. But Idris Elba has more of that brooding quality that I want from the Deadshot character, but he's also quick witted and he can be funny as well. Not that that's something that you really need, but he has the ability to do. All of those things, and I, I just think he's a little bit more rough around the edges than Will Smith is, and I think it's more suited for the Deadshot character. So to me, this is an upgrade, but this is not the only news that we got from Suicide Squad 2. Joel Kinnaman is out as Rick Flagg. There's no saying that they're going to replace that character. It doesn't seem to me like they would. There's also no word on whether Margot Robbie or Viola Davis are going to be back as Harley Quinn and Amanda Waller, respectively. I'd say you've got about a 70-30 chance that Margot Robbie will be back as Harley for this. I'm, I'm sure it's just a scheduling thing with her, too, because clearly she's got other things going on at the moment in the DC Universe. So it just might not be possible because they are still shooting for that August 6th, 2021 release. So you got a ton of time. And while all this is going on, Collider actually reveals that there's going to be four names that are, again, as of me recording this, not confirmed... But it looks like they will be a part of Suicide Squad too as well. And that's King Shark, Rat Catcher, who is a Batman villain, Polka Dot Man, also a Batman villain, and Peacemaker. But the interesting thing about Peacemaker is, is it looks like Dave Bautista might be James Gunn's pick for that character. So that kind of sets up some of the new members in the Suicide Squad. Like I said last week, it's a rotating group anyway for the most part. You're not necessarily going to get the same people in the Suicide Squad that you got the last time. So this makes sense. And if you're looking at this list and going, oh, well, the only big name on there is King Shark and Deadshot, and I don't know if I'm going to be... You know what? There's a ton of interesting villains. And just look what James Gunn was able to do with Guardians of the Galaxy. It's not like the Guardians of the Galaxy were this top-flight group in Marvel that everybody knew about. I'm not talking about die-hard comic book fans. I'm talking about... Casual fans, everybody, like everybody knows who Harley Quinn is. There are plenty of DC fans that don't even know who Rat Catcher is. Okay, and that's all right. But don't look at the names. Think about the execution of these characters, and think that maybe, just maybe, they're being chosen for a reason. So I trust James Gunn. I think he's built up a great reputation. By the way, Brightburn, if you saw the second trailer for that, looks good as well. James Gunn is about to be on a roll. I think in DC is definitely lucky to have him. But there is some sad DC news this week. I'm just going to get to this really quick because I think it kind of speaks for itself. And that is that Arrow will be ending after this upcoming eighth season this fall. And I say that because, well, first of all, Stephen Mel broke the news on Twitter initially, and then it's been confirmed by Beth Schwartz and Mark Guggenheim through The Hollywood Reporter. But the, the interesting thing here is, is that it's going to be a shortened 10-episode eighth season. And that seems to beg the question here. Does Oliver die in the Crisis on Infinite Earth's crossover? Here's why I say no, and I say no because of a plot hole that, that would be that would be created from this past week's episode of Arrow. And that's that when you saw Mia and you saw William talking about having, you know, bad parents, they were kind of reminiscing about how bad their parents were. Well, first of all, we know that Oliver's tried to get in touch with William, but William doesn't think he he has since he got sent off to his grandparents. So we'll have to figure out why that is and what happens there. But Mia's also saying that it wasn't such a prize growing up with them as parents either. And she says them. So that means Oliver was certainly alive enough for her to remember that that was her father. So I don't, unless there's a major time jump in season 8 of Arrow, and in the Arrowverse entirely, I guess we can't call it the Arrowverse anymore, I don't see Oliver dying in Crisis on Infinite Earth. Now, granted, there could be plenty of time travel stuff, or maybe he gets you get stuck in another dimension or something like that, or on another Earth, although on another Earth shouldn't really do much to keep him there. There are certainly ways to get back from other Earths, but there are certainly ways you could write out Oliver Queen without actually killing Oliver Queen. But you also have to keep Felicity around because, again, plot holes. And I know that the timelines can be changed and all this different stuff, and there are certainly in numerous possibilities. That's why there's really no sense in speculating, I think, exactly what's going to happen and what makes this show end. Maybe nothing happens to Oliver, and he just decides that he's done, and he's going to let Emiko take over. And what if this is setting up some sort of a chance for Emiko? to take the bow and run with it. Maybe Arrow's ending, but some sort of a spinoff will be created from that. There's certainly been plenty of spin offs of Arrow before, and if the Emiko character is popular enough, that's certainly an option. I also just don't think that this closes the door entirely on Stephen Amell reprising his role as Oliver Queen at some point in one of these other shows, not on a permanent basis, but at least on a temporary basis. This also makes me wonder if Warner Brothers is planning a Green Arrow movie, because this is the kind of thing that happens right before something like that gets announced. So I wouldn't be surprised if we end up getting a Green Arrow solo film franchise, now that according to our story last week, Warner Brothers is doing the whole solo thing now, not necessarily connecting everything so much. That doesn't mean it's going to be Stephen Amell, as the Green Arrow as Oliver Queen either, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if we find out within the next year, year and a half, there's going to be a Green Arrow movie. Now, you know, it's hard for me to say goodbye to the show. It's been one of my favorites for a while. Yes, it has had its ups and downs, but think of all of the things that we got because Arrow was successful. So whether you love Arrow now or hate it or have ever loved it or have always hated it, whatever, if you love anything that DC TV is doing, you got to tip your cap to the Arrow Writers Room, to Mark Guggenheim and company, to Stephen Amell, to David Ramsey, to everyone on that show, anyone that's ever been on Arrow and set this universe in the right path from the beginning, you've got to thank them, at least in part, because we've gotten some great stuff and we will continue to get some great stuff because they laid the groundwork and I thank them for that and I can't wait to thank them in person at San Diego Comic-Con coming up this year. Now, we did talk about Disney Plus last week as well, and apparently not done talking about that either. Here's a big piece of surprising news, though. Bob Iger was doing a whole shareholders meeting, the annual shareholders meeting recently, CEO of Disney, and he said that the entire Disney film library will be available on Disney Plus. Now, this apparently also includes the vaulted movies, the Marvel Studios movies, and the Star Wars movies. Now, this would be a big step for Disney, because you know how Disney likes to give you something for a little bit, then take it away, make you miss it, and they give it back, and so on and so forth. That doesn't mean, by the way, that they're that that's not what they're going to do here at some point. But for now, think about it at, at the initial launch, saying, okay, we're just going to give it all to you. That's a great selling point. I'm sorry. And they say they're going to try to, at one point they said they were going to try to keep the price lower than Netflix as far as a monthly fee, if you're going to do this and have all these original shows and have all of these original movies that are coming, I can't wait to see how you're going to keep it below Netflix prices. Don't know how you're going to be able to do that. I mean, maybe there's going to be some sort of a neat initial trick where, you know, you sign up for a year or something and they'll give you a deal to make it that. But man, I got to tell you, if you're getting, if you're really getting all of this stuff this is a deal that's going to be really really hard to pass up for anybody, especially for somebody like me that has kids. Ah, this is a really tough one to pass up. Plus you know they're not going to stop with the stuff that's already announced. They're going to keep on growing and growing and growing. This thing's going to be a monster before it's all said and done. And you know what else would you expect from Disney? So if this does end up being true and you get the entire library, it's going to be one of those deals where I'm just going to I can't wait to sit down and watch stuff that I haven't watched in a while, like Oliver and Company. You know, always one of my favorites that you just really don't get to see anymore. You know, and the old Robin Hood, Sword in the Stone. This is stuff that, I mean, I have on Blu-ray, but I'm going to be a goof and watch it on Disney Plus anyway because that's just, you know, that's what you do when you got a new toy, right? You just, you take it out for a spin. Even if you've got the old toy sitting there that's the exact same thing, if there's a new toy available, you're going to play with it for a little bit, right? So I, I'm very curious to see when Disney Plus actually gets releases and how, released and how it's executed. Speaking of great execution, Cobra Kai season two trailer dropped this past week from YouTube, and one of the things that I just I just had to smile and laugh. Like, man, there goes Daniel sticking it to Johnny again. He's gonna offer free lessons at Miyagi Do. Did you see that in the trailer? I'm like, wow. I mean, that that is a dick move, isn't it? And that is a slap slap in the face to Johnny, especially since you know that Johnny's struggling with Cobra Kai, right? But I mean, this trailer was pretty straightforward. I mean, it seems like it'll be an all-out battle with Cobra Kai and Miyagi-Do. We get to see Sam and Robbie training together. It looks like they're going to be the prized students. No really romantic involvement there that we have that we saw in this trailer. So it will be interested to see if that actually kind of plays out or if the love triangle continues with Miguel in season one. Speaking of Miguel, we see the Cobra Kai group. They are still together. They are still training together. It looks like they were actually shooting a a commercial or some sort of video on the on a, on a cell phone at one point for Cobra Kai. So I, I really hope that we actually get to see that video brought in as some sort of an ad. I think that would be great. One of the biggest questions for me, though, for Season 2 is that where does John Kreese fit in? You see him at the end of Season 1. He shows up. Johnny doesn't seem too thrilled about it. But, you know, maybe he offers some sort of a financial backing and wants to see Johnny take down Daniel once and for all, and that seems like, you know, since Daniel essentially took his son away from him, I'm sure that's how Johnny feels. I'm sure that that Johnny wants to take Daniel down more than he ever has, although they were so close to being buddies at one point in season one. I'm actually kind of sad a little bit that that didn't happen, but the rivalry right now seems just, just at a fever pitch, and Daniel really seems to be obsessed with defeating Cobra Kai again, and maybe For the final time. So it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out and see how the dynamic changes a little bit from season one to season two. But you know how big of a Karate Kid fan I am. I'm in regardless. So April 24th, I'm going to be there. I'm probably going to stay up, get the Mountain Dew cracked, and just binge the entire thing in one day. Finally, before we move on, IDW is in some serious, serious turmoil right now. Blooding Cool just reported not too long ago that investors. And IDW Media Holdings are calling for the sale of the company. Now, remember, chairman of the board, Howard Jonas, also the majority stockholder, replaced CEO Kerry McCluggage recently. I mean, and it did not go well for McCluggage. N- wasn't even in that position with the company for a year. Now, there have been some pending legal trouble for some other employees at IDW media holdings and certain things that are happening there. We won't get into that here. Certainly not going to talk about any pending litigation or anything like that, even if it seems like certain things, you know, the evidence might be a little bit damning in certain situations. It's not for me to get into that. And the one positive thing that I think that happened for IDW, at least in this past year, was bringing back Chris Riles, editor-in-chief president and publisher, I'm my worry there is that they're stretching him too thin, but it seems it's gotten to the point now where there's been some rumors that IDW's in financial trouble. That certainly seems to be brought to the forefront with everything that's happening with wine owner Earp. The it's, it's next season should have started shooting by now, and it's not. And sci fi saying, Well, we're just waiting on IDW, you know, because they're in charge of production and production costs and everything like that. And it seems like little bit cash poor for IDW right now, and it seems like they are there are there's rumors that they're seeking additional funding. Here's the deal: what did I just? There was one part of the Disney Plus story that I didn't mention, and that's that they said that they would look in to possibly third party licensing. Now I'm not saying that Disney can just swoop in and save Winona Earp, okay? Because they they are contractually obligated to deliver seasons to sci-fi at least one more season as far as we know so it's not like Disney can just swoop in there and grab Winona Earp and run with it but at the same time Disney could easily swoop in and grab IDW think about Disney having at least some sort of a partnership with Hasbro to be able to bring G.I. Joe and Transformers into the fold that they already have how crazy would that be but how do you feel if you're Hasbro right now, you're about to go all in on movies again. You, you put out Bumblebee. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. You're really trying to get things back on the right track. You started all spark pictures for your, for your Hasbro property movies. And then this happens with IDW. And I'm not saying IDW can't write the ship. They absolutely can. You put the right people in place and things start to mend themselves a little. They're still putting out great comics. IDW is still a great company. They're just going through a really really rough patch right now. So I'm really hoping that if there is a sale, it's not going to be one of those things where it's just a property grab and we see things start to get cut or declined in any way. I hope that if there is a sale of the company, that the company that takes over realizes what they have and just let the people that need to do what they need to do to get things right, do that. Hire the right people for the job. IDW can certainly sustain itself with the right people in charge. They certainly did that before. There was just some bad decisions that were clearly made. This is just my opinion that were clearly made in this case because IDW went down and went down in a hurry. It didn't seem like this is something that happened over time. This almost happened overnight, it seems like. So if you're a Winona Earp fan, it looks like you're going to have to be patient. If you're a Hasbro fan, you're going to be biting at your nails a little bit. Little bit nervous. I think things are going to work out for IDW. I just hope that this sale ends up leading to good things, if it happens. That's going to do it for Nerd News up next. Yep, the season finale of The Passage is coming up, and we'll talk to Keisha Lewis all about it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Hey, this is Mark Paul Gossler from. The Passage on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: I can't tell you how much we're looking forward to the two-hour finale of Fox's The Passage. It's going to be coming up on Monday, 8 o'clock Eastern. and so excited to talk to Sister Lacey Antone herself, and former military instructor, (laughs) by the way. It's Keisha Lewis. Keisha, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing fantastic. Now, I have to ask, what's it been like to be a part of a show that not only has a lot of strong women but a lot of strong African-American women.
1: It has been a dream come true. I tell you what, I've been doing this for 35 years. This this January made 35 years for me in show business, and I have never been a part of something, either, you know, theater, television, film, that had so many women of color and little girls of of color just kicking butt and taking names, and it's just been really a fun empowering experience and and i just love how that comes across on television it's awesome
0: speaking of experiences not too many people can say that they've been both a nun and military instructor so do you kind of think (laughs) that that gives Lacey a unique perspective maybe in a crisis situation
1: absolutely i think that Lacey is able to understand discipline in a way that people who have not had those experiences via military or Ministerial would not have. And I think that with uh, Lacey's particular perspective, she's able to take in all the information and listen in a very deep kind of a way and then make a decision about what needs to be done. And because she's Lacey, usually it entails kicking somebody's butt. Well, you know, so that. we
0: love that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I was thinking about this the other day, actually, when I found out I was going to be talking to you, and I'm thinking, oh, what do I want to ask her? I was thinking back to some of the past episodes, and I thought, you know, this whole thing could have unraveled if it wasn't for Lacey. I mean, first you've got Brad comes to her very early on with Amy to kind of seek shelter, and then Lila, when when you guys failed to expose Project Noah, looks like she's about to break down, and Lacey kind of brings her back. Have you thought about that, how this whole thing could have just not even happened if Lacey wasn't there?
1: You know, I had not thought about that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that, the primary thing I should say that drew me the character when i first read it to even audition was the whole idea that you know people are in crisis and this is a person that on first glance doesn't give you the warm fuzzies but she is absolutely someone who can help and uh i think that because of her unique perspective with brad having known him as a student And then having graduated the Academy and gone on to, you know, do this job that Lacey wasn't thrilled with, but he's certainly more than qualified for, you know, it just lends itself to her being able to help him just as much as she can that little sweet Amy.
0: Absolutely. Now, there are definitely some changes in your character in the show from the book. Did you know what those changes would be, and do you think that they were good changes?
1: I did know. I I took the time to read the book after I got cast, and actually I didn't even finish it until we finished shooting. But I didn't know, you know, the specifics around the differences between the book and the TV series, but I'm actually very happy. I think that um, the idea that Liz Heldens and the writers and our producers had to... Tie in Lacey with both Brad and Amy, whereas in the book she's tied to Amy first and foremost. Uh, I think it's pretty brilliant. And I think it's that making that change offers, you know, Lacey the opportunity to, again, be of service to both people, mm-hmm. you know, these, these two leads who are in trouble.
0: Now we finally got to see what happened with Brad and Lila's daughter, which we've been, which we've been, you know, kind of been teasing in the show for a while. So, how do you, how much does yeah. Lacey actually know about what happened in that situation? How do you think she feels about Brad going into this finale?
1: Lacey knows, I believe that Lacey knows what happened. She and Brad were close, as uh, Lacey said in uh, the first time you saw her. She said it to Amy. You know, he was one of my favorites, but don't tell him. They got close. And I think that just in reference to what we are seeing now, it helps everybody get a perspective about Brad's uh, love and connection to Amy. I mean, it's very, very specific now that everybody knows exactly what happened to this daughter. You
0: know, it's interesting, too, because that's just Amy, isn't it? Like you said, you know, Lacey has kind of a rough exterior a little bit. But there was such a, something about Amy that makes her instantly just love this little girl. And that seems to happen to every character that she comes in contact with. Is Doesn't that seem very unique? That's just not something you see in a character all the time.
1: No, it's not something you see in a character all the time. But I have to say, in real life, I have seen it. You know, I have seen that there are children, there are adults but you you see it more so with children. There are just some kids that are special. They have something that you can't quite put your finger on that endears them to nearly everyone. Of course, there's always going to be a stray person here or there who is not moved by you know the endearing qualities of this kid but for the most part, I have seen that. I've seen that many times, but this is the first time I'm seeing it on television.
0: Definitely. We're talking to Keisha Lewis, who, of course, plays Lacey, on The Passage to our finale. going to be coming up this Monday on Fox. Now, Keisha, when we first meet Lacey, she's living completely off the grid. She's surrounded by security. Do you think you could live completely off the grid? And if so, what would you miss the most?
1: Hmm, I think I could live completely off the grid. I don't know if I'd want to, but I know that I could. And probably what I would miss the most, I guess it would be human contact. I would I would be unlike Lacey in that regard. Lacey has pretty much decided that human contact is overrated. She's <laughs> very... <laughs> <laughs> She's very, very content, not dealing with anything or anyone except her goats. So, uh, and the occasional, you know, I got a guy, guy yeah. that helps her with something that she might need. So, yeah, I think that be that would be it. And what's funny is the older I get, you know, the the more I'm starting to understand why Lacey wants to be off the grid. <laughs> totally,
0: totally, yep, I'm right there with you. Oh wow, that's awesome. Now we know that Clark Richards also served with Brad. Now, we don't necessarily know if Lacey knows Clark, but what can you tell me? What do you think Lacey would think of Clark Richards, the soldier?
1: I think that Lacey would not be too pleased with Clark, in that Clark tends to, I mean, we're seeing, we've seen a shift now with Clark. We're understanding him a little better, because now we have some insight into his relationship with Brad. But I think that Lacey, just because of her background as a nun and, you know, being that person who has a deep well of empathy, someone like Clark, who seems to be all about procedure first, just something about that stance in life, I I think might rub Lacey the wrong way. Because you can have procedure and that be very, very important, Mm -hmm. but empathy needs to be first, absolutely first.
0: No doubt about that. Now, Lacey definitely has some great skills and great training. We've seen that many times, but we've yet to see her actually encounter a viral on the show. So if and when that happens, do you think she's going to be able to hold her own?
1: Absolutely. Stay tuned.
0: Oh, look at that. That's a nice little quick tease, too. It's like, that's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> You'll figure that's it out all. on your own. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in that, in that respect, actually, it's been a while since we've seen Lacey. So, do you think that she's kind of the secret weapon, right? Because, you know, when anytime there's like a crisis situation, you see a group that's kind of got their backs up against the wall, they've got a little bit of a secret weapon, right? Do you feel like Lacey could be that secret weapon headed into this finale?
1: Absolutely. Stay tuned. Oh, she did it to me
0: again. Oh, wow. <laughs> Look at that. Look at I'll that. I'll just put it
1: like this. As an actress, when I got that script, I was very excited. I was very excited.
0: Wow, wow! And, and I mean, if anybody hasn't read the books yet, you should be excited for a reason. That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> so you're gonna have to watch the two hours season finale of The Passage Monday. It's gonna start a little bit different, eight o'clock Eastern on Fox. Make sure you watch it again, by the way, after the fact. Fox Now app, and you know, because find out more at fox.com as well. It's Keisha Lewis, Lacy waiting for her to. Maybe kick some butt in this finale. Thanks for joining me this week.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been great.
0: Man, if those little teases there at the end don't get you fired up for the season finale of The Passage this Monday, special time, 8 o'clock Eastern on Fox. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. We've talked to so many great members of the cast and producers of The Passage. I've been hooked since episode one. And I mean, I kind of don't want to see how this season ends, because I kind of feel like I know what's coming, and I'm nervous, so I hope you're just as nervous as I am and can't wait to watch it this Monday. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Keisha Lewis for joining me this week to talk about the passage. Also, Cassandra Freeman talking about the enemy within as well. If you want more interviews and just all kinds of other crazy stuff we're doing, Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Don't forget, we're going to have coverage of WonderCon 2019 coming up at the end of this month. We will be there in Anaheim for everything. Make sure you're following us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.